I'm so glad that you have taken the time to listen to some of my ponderings around the Christmas story. But if you have been tracking with us for the last couple of weeks or months, I would love to hear from you. I have been trying a bunch of different things. I've recorded in different sessions. I've also tried shorter talks. I've tried longer talks. I have tried interview format. I have tried uh, asking questions that I'm getting. And so if you have feedback that you like this format, you don't like other formats, you like a certain length of time, you don't, I would love to hear from you. And particularly if you have discipleship questions or spiritual growth questions or things you're wrestling through, you can also let me know and questions will be kept confidential. But if that is something you're like, oh, I wonder if you could address this issue or how would you go about growing in this thing? Please drop me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Online Pastor Podcast, a place for you to discover faith and explore what it means to follow Jesus, experience God, and navigate life as a person of faith. My name is Amanda, and I am your host and Bible mentor, and I am excited to be on this journey with you. So last week we did part one of this two-part series around Jesus' family tree and particularly looking at Ruth. And we began to peel back some of the layers of Ruth's background, particularly her being a Moabite and the implications of that for the people who are reading and hearing her story who are Jewish If you did not get a chance to listen to that, I would encourage you to go do that because I think that will set you up for a a more richer and deeper understanding of the particular point we're going to look at today. Um, I am just excited because I am amazed that stories that I took for granted when I slow them down, and you'll hear me oftentimes say this, when I slow them down enough I actually realized how much I miss in between the lines. And this happened again with the first couple of verses of Ruth. And so I'm just going to read verses three to five, because that's where we're going to focus today. And this, these verses are very fascinating because there's so much that is between the lines of these verses. And so I'm going to start and we'll see where we land. So Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies and she's left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Mahon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, as I mentioned last week, these first five verses, I just glossed over and I thought they're peripheral information. They're just kind of letting us know, you know, the setting of the story and the character And it's really the plot that you have to pay attention to. But I did not realize that these, particularly verses 3, 4, and 5, contain significant information regarding the woman's societal position. So we read in these verses that Naomi is now a widow, but she has already had children, and specifically sons. Now, why this is important, I think that perhaps in our culture we can miss the implications of a woman who is married and having children and particular sons is because so much of women's positions were relational. Their uh, value even I would say is relational. 
being really frank, we'll just talk about this a bit later later in the podcast. We'll pull it out. But a, a lot of women uh, functioned as property of the estate. And so even marriages were alliances between, you know, we have a cattle farm and you have a lot of land. And so if we create an alliance, our cattle will have places to eat. Like there were things, marriages were about alliances and it was about perpetuating the family line because it was also a way having children was a way that the family line would continue. And a woman would guarantee, especially if she had sons to take over the family uh, estate, could guarantee that even in her, her old age, she would be cared for. So having children is immensely important, if I'm really honest, because of economy. I think sometimes we miss that because, yes, there is relational significance there, but just the economy of the estate, if you want to call it that, I'm sorry if someone else is trained in better language, that's what I'm going to call it, but there is a lot of um, onus on sons and women to bear children, create alliances, and create stability for their families. So Ruth has done that. Like she has, she has had sons, but the sons have died. And this is gonna, gonna have a problem because it means that she has no one to care for her in her old age. Ruth, we learn from these verses, is not only a widow, but she's childless and very likely, and I found this interesting, very likely barren. Now, those of you who know me, are going to laugh because you like we talk about how how blunt I am and how low context Dutch culture is like we just say it like it is sometimes I find it hard to kind of read between the lines of things and it's something I have constantly had to work at both in in listening to people that what they're not saying but also communicating things um, more gently or less directly and so in this way the I had to work at understanding the implications of they lived there about 10 years. That's what the verses say. They lived there about 10 years. So much apparently is implied in this line that we actually have to stop and do read between the lines. The reader of the story, the listener, the original context, the original audience would have known what is being said without it being stated explicitly. Ruth should have had children by now. And very unlikely, and it's very unlike or very likely that she's unable to because she hasn't yet. So she is very likely barren. So we find ourselves within these verses introduced to two women who are main characters of our book, but whom the readers of the book in real life at that time wouldn't have given a second thought, probably not even glanced at, and almost almost derision. So when I say that, that comes, that touches a bit on Ruth's background is a Moabite, but then there's a sort of derision about Naomi leaving the promised land. Like she's left even her family and her tribe behind. So she doesn't even have anyone to take care of her uh, where she is, which is why Ruth's vow to her later is so significant. But that's, a you know, another story for another time. I just want to point out here that these women are likely unseen and what is done in this story is they're brought right to the right to the center and then they stay there. They don't go away. They're introduced and it's their voices that this story tells. And they become the entire focus of this little book. But not only that, 
they become protagonists in their own, I'm going to use this word, like destiny. They actually, Naomi instigates things and Ruth follows through on things. And we're going to see that they actively participate in, in, in creating their futures, future. Which is, you know, all the information that we need to know at this point. But the question is, I wonder if there's a different implication or interpretation to these verses and we originally thought. And so the significance of Ruth then in the in the family line of Jesus is actually even greater than we realize. Not just that she is an outsider. <laughs> She's a Moabite. So not just any outsider, you know, a nation with a history of incest. But now we read, here is someone who at the time would have been understood to be barren. And then she's also a widow. Okay, so I'm just going to take a step into our century for a second, because I do think, as I've mentioned earlier, we don't really understand the significance of what becoming a widow does for a lot of women. And if you're listening to this, and you maybe have had a spouse pass away, or have seen someone lose a spouse, I would encourage you in this season, especially reach out to them because I think there is a a loneliness of someone who has been with someone for so long. But oftentimes there's a lot more loss than simply a spouse. Um, I'm going to just tell you about this place in India that is called the Valley of the Widows. And in this city, there are about 6,000 women namely widows, who've traveled from all around India and they have taken up residence there. They live out their lives among others in the same position. Now, why this is significant is because in India, oftentimes after a husband dies, they are um, there's a funeral pyre, which is basically a fire where the body is burnt, and the wife is expected to throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre. It's custom until um, very recently but as a result, if they don't, they find themselves uh, they they find themselves in derision. Sometimes they are actually driven out by their own children, so they they don't need to be cared for out of their own villages or ostracized, and they're chased out of town so that the family is not required to share the inheritance or to prevent any um, sense of the woman needing care. And these women end up traveling to this valley. And that is why actually they're known is because there's so many of them here. But sadly, what I learned in my research of this is treatment of widows is not uncommon in other countries as well. It's just less apparent because they're, una- because they're unable to congregate in the same way this woman, these women in India have done. It can be hard for us, I think, to understand the devastation of losing a spouse um, for those of us who haven't lost a spouse. But I think also where your relational position, your value in society comes from those relationships as a mother or as a wife, and then the security, the economic security that still comes from that position, I, I think we don't, I can't even relate to that fully. I bring this up because there is still some of that dynamic today for women around the world that there was in Ruth's time. It's women who are voiceless, have no political standing, have no rights, have never been trained to earn income outside of home. So they have very little ability to assert their own future. And so very like Ruth and Naomi, they are more property than people. So we have Naomi, who is a widow, and yet she was a mother. And Ruth, a widow and never a mother, 
and very unlikely to be. Two women who would have been societies unseen and unvalued. They have no relationships to define them, no place to call home, no protection from relatives. These women are voiceless and valueless. And unless we slow down and read between those lines and see not only the situation the women find themselves in, I think we we don't really understand the significance of them being included and seen in Jesus' family line. Ruth, not only an outsider, but a Moabitess and a widow and childless. And I would say for the listeners of the book of Ruth, you know, when the scroll's being read, she's the most unlikely candidate for the family line of David. She's not only foreign, but she's barren. But, but we know it's not God's plan that society gets to define who's in or out and what makes an individual valuable or not. And so while it's human nature to want to label and compartmentalize people by race or give them value based on relational status, in God's family, it is meant and supposed to be different. And it looks to me like he was already doing that before we really understood that that was what he was doing. Because Jesus' ancestry says more about what he's going to do in the future than about the past. I just wonder... And I said this last week too. I wonder if Ruth is part of the family of Jesus, not because of who she was, but because of who she wasn't. She's not an Israelite, but she's also basically a nobody and a no one. And so I wonder if she is included as a foreshadowing of God's redemptive plan to include outsiders, but particularly to include the unseen and the unvalued in his redemption. Might it have been God's plan all along to provide people for his people and to provide people who are unseen with being seen? Drawing attention to the undervalued and then intervening in a way that only God's hand, it could be only God's hand that does it. Some might even call that miraculous. (laughs) A barren foreign woman becomes part of God's family. She is the one, which I find so fascinating. I didn't really see this. Even if you think about Ruth's own life and her oath to Naomi, Ruth the foreigner comes into following Naomi into Israel. So she becomes a foreigner dwelling in a foreign land. (laughs) what does Jesus do when he comes? God puts on flesh and moves into the neighborhood, as the message says. And then not only that, Ruth promises Naomi, right? Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And you just think of Jesus drawing us close. I'm with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. He emptied himself. God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Isn't that a miracle? (laughs) I don't know. When When did I lose the miracle of Christmas and the story? And I think I lost the miracle when I didn't realize just how special it was. Sometimes... 
I wonder if I became the Grinch who stole Christmas. And not because I did it on purpose, but because I heard the story so many times and I just glossed over some of the details. And I wonder as we're walking in the Christmas season, kind of preparing and waiting in in Advent, that if in our familiarity with the story, we have ceased to wonder at the miracle of Christmas. And more importantly, that we have ceased to wonder and be amazed at our own inclusion in the family of God. Our inclusion in the family of God says more about our future than it does about our past. It says more about who we are called to become than about where we come from. And so I wonder if in looking at reading and dwelling on the story of Ruth, we might also see that it was God's plan all along to include us was happening way before we even knew that we were part of the story. So I wonder if in this Christmas season, we might get restoration in the miraculous of the Christmas story. The Holy Spirit and a pregnant virgin. Angels singing to outsiders, shepherds in the sky. A star appearing over a small cave in Bethlehem, bringing wise men from afar And so I wonder if we can find ourselves in the next couple of weeks with the shepherds singing about Jesus' birth and that we stumble into the stable because we know the truth that we never belonged in Bethlehem or in Israel or even in the family of God. But the good news of this season is exactly that, that we are invited to witness and celebrate the birth of Jesus And in this season, we, along with the shepherds, can come and worship and be part of this very merry, messy Christmas story. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Online Pastor Podcast. Please take something away and talk to God about it. But also, don't take my word for it. Grab your Bibles and spend some time with Jesus. Stay current on the next episode by hitting subscribe and also stay connected by finding us under the handle, the online pastor. I look forward to being with you again.